What did he say? <laughs> Hi, everybody. Thank you so much for coming. Now I feel like I'm screaming. I'm going to get started with the logistics, but please feel free to help yourself to cookies and punch. Um, we're happy to see you all here. I'm Deb Hastings. I direct continuing nursing education here at Dartmouth-Hitchcock, and I am thrilled to welcome you here to this special session of Nursing Grand Rounds. Today, we're celebrating the 10th anniversary of the Dartmouth Healthcare Community's Great Issues in Medicine and Global Health Symposium. Okay, hold on. There we go. And these are photos of the posters from the past 10 years. The overall goal of the symposium has been to engage our general and professional communities in discussions that lead to individual or collective action about all of the um, uh, Millennium Development Goals. Whoops, how did I do that? Let me try it again. And uh, this particular session, we're, um, we're talking about the eighth Millennium Development Goal maximizing global partnerships for the development of under-resourced countries and communities. Oh, that's okay. So you'll note at the end of our presentation, we have placed some resources um, if, if you're interested in reading more about global health topics. And the authors of these works that are featured at the end have either been involved in the planning of this conference or um, are speaking at the symposium. So before we begin, and I'm just going to take a couple of minutes, but it's important that we do this. I want to acknowledge um, two very special nurses who are here with us this afternoon. The first person is a dear friend and colleague, and the only nurse who has been involved in the planning of this symposium for the past 10 years. Her presence has ensured that nursing remain part of the annual recognition of global health here at Dartmouth-Hitchcock, and that person is Wendy Murphy. So if you could please come up here for one here, moment. trouble for that later. Now, the second person I, wanna, I want to honor has served as the interim coordinator of our global and national nursing initiative here at Dartmouth-Hitchcock for the past year, and that's Sandy Soho. Wherever she is. Sandy agreed to fill in for our coordinator, Andrew Martin, who has been away for the past year working with his wife, Tina. Uh, with Doctors Without Borders in Tajikistan, and they're just back from Tajikistan, and they're sit right up there, wave. We're thrilled to have them back safe and sound, and Andy will be resuming his um, role in early December. So again, back to Sandy. She has really helped to move our, our work forward this past year. She's developed new relationships working with underserved populations in our community, in this community, and has enhanced our connections to the Indian Health Services, working closely with our colleagues at Dartmouth College. She's also helped with our ongoing work to support nursing education in Haiti. These are just a few of her accomplishments. Sandy is committed to this work, having worked as a volunteer in Ethiopia for a number of years. We're sorry that she will be leaving this formal position, but we know that with her passion about the work, she'll remain close to our ongoing initiatives. So if you could please come up for one little moment. <laughs> She's been fabulous. Thank you. It's important to the work. 
Now for the official stuff. I'd like to remind you to silence those cell phones pages out of respect for our presenter. Be sure you've signed the attendance sheet so that we have a record of your being here. And if you're watching remotely, please be sure to contact Judy Langhans via email after the presentation to let her know that you actually were in attendance. And if you have questions during the presentation, she's monitoring email and you can address those questions to her at judith.m as in Mary dot Langhans, L-A-N-G-H-A-N-S at hitchcock.org. All the evaluation forms will be sent to you electronically soon after the end of the program, and you must be present for 80% of the program in order to, re, uh, to receive your CE credit. Your contact hours will appear on your electronic transcript in two to three weeks. We want you to know that neither our speaker nor anyone on the planning committee for today's program has reported a relationship with a commercial entity, and no individuals uh, refused to disclose. The title of our presentation is Global Partnerships from Haiti to Home. We're thrilled to have this presenter with us this afternoon, Dr. Sheila Davis. Dr. Davis serves as the Chief Nursing Officer for Partners in Health. She received her BSN from Northeastern University and her Master's in Nursing and DNP from MGH Institute of Health Professions, of Health Professions in Boston. She began her nursing career in the area of infectious diseases, working with patients diagnosed with HIV AIDS. She began working globally in 1999 and has vast operational and implementation experience in a wide variety of global health issues. She's published in a number of peer-reviewed journals and contributed chapters to a number of textbooks. She was inducted as a fellow into the American Academy of Nursing in 2008 and is currently part of the 2012 cohort of the Robert Wood Johnson Executive Nurse Fellowship. And she just told me that's where she met Linda Cronenwet, one of our former colleagues here at Dartmouth-Hitchcock. So we're thrilled, again, that she's been able to join us here today. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Davis. And of course, presents, because we're oh, all about you. presents. Well, oh, just that's lovely. Here, OK. <laughs> Thank you so much. I'm going to try to fool with the lights because the pictures I want you to be able to see. Is that okay? Excellent. Thank you. Thank you so much um, for maybe inviting me to be here today. And I have to see some old HIV friends, so I'm, I'm really glad about that. Um, so hopefully today I'm going to talk a little bit about my journey, but mostly about what I'm doing currently now at Partners in Health, and um, mostly related to Haiti, although we work in 10 to 12 countries, depending on how you count. Um, but I spend the majority of my time in our four largest um, countries, which is Haiti, Malawi, Rwanda, and Lesotho. But we have um, projects in Mexico, and Peru, and Russia, and in various places around the world. So the objective today is to talk a little bit about the pH model of global health, um, a little bit about the global nursing landscape, and then talk about our clinical nurse educator role that we have successfully launched in Haiti. So this, and I know there's a few people who heard me earlier today, so there's only a few slides I promise that are the same. Um, this is a quote from George Har, who says, the worst sin towards our fellow creatures is not to hate them, but to be indifferent to them. That's the essence of inhumanity. I think a lot of us who were involved in the early days of HIV became involved because of advocacy. So a lot of the same tools that we used 
in HIV certainly have translated into global health and, and is a, the reason why many of us went into nursing um, for social justice and uh, to really look at the equity agenda. So hopefully that's embedded through, has been through my nursing career and we'll talk about today. So from Haiti to home, so I spend a lot of time on airplanes, much more so than I ever would have imagined, but still only have gotten bumped up once with American Airlines, <laughs> which seems criminal to me with the amount I fly. But um, so I flip back and forth between, mostly between Haiti and the US. And while in the US, I work at Mass General just a few days a month as a nurse practitioner in the infectious disease unit will have, where I've been for a long time now. And it really, the, the differences in the two worlds are, are quite astounding. And even re-entering into life for those of us who do global health can be a challenge. And those of us who work in different um, communities, even in our own um, domestic practice, but it may look really different from where our patients live and where we live. So this, this back and forth, um, whether it happens via a plane or a few mile drive, I think is an important piece of, of how we continue to do our practice and something that we should not ignore and I think we should be aware of. So this says, and back again, and, and um, we've, through my time at Partners in Health, and I just joined post-earthquake, so I didn't, I wasn't there during, obviously, the uh, beginning of the aftermath, aftermath, but the first, the week that I started at Partners Health is the week that cholera outbroke in Haiti. So my entry into Partners in Health was, was one filled with chaos, obviously, and, and massive destruction on a different level than the earthquake, uh, but certainly a lot of the lessons learned um, apply to both situations. So how, I think regardless of where we practice, and I think my view of global nursing is you're a global nurse, whether you work in Dartmouth or you work in Haiti, you work in Mattapan or wherever you are, I think it's how we, we um, view our practice and if viewing it via a global lens to me is what makes me a global nurse, not where I physically am practicing. So my foundation of care and how I approach things is seeing health as a human right. That allows me to work in inner city Boston and in Rwanda and Lesotho and different places because the decision making I make as a nurse and as a global health practitioner is, is based on this premise and really shouldn't differ um, from the decisions I make in Boston versus make the ones I make in Haiti or in other places. So Partners in Health, where most people have heard of us in this area, obviously because of Jim Kim, um, but we provide a preferential option for the poor. We work by establishing sister organizations in the countries we work. Um, and really base the, our two overarching goals are bringing the benefits of modern medicine um, to those in the most need. And I like to expand that to say it's really healthcare, not just um, a medical um, science, but also healthcare and then to really serve as an antidote to despair. And I think that when I first read that, I, I always thought that was a little bit odd. Um, but I, I, after working at PH and seeing the decision making we go through, that is a big piece of what we try to do, is to really impact um, that level of, of despair and also approaching things um, with that in mind that we're preferentially choosing to work with, with uh, places that are the most um, adversely affected by poverty. So we care for about 3 million people worldwide and we operate or renovated um, about 60 health facilities in 12 countries, employ about 14,000 people, only about 100 are based in Boston. 
Um, the vast majority are accompanitors, the community health workers that are from around um, the places we work. There's only two full-time nurses that work for PIH, and I'm the one of them. The other one I just hired literally three weeks ago. So the nursing staff that we have, which now probably for all of our country's numbers now probably about 1,800 or maybe 2,000 even with our new hospital in Haiti, um, they're all nurses from those particular countries. So it's definitely a, a um, Haitian nursing model, Rwandan nursing model, et cetera. And we by far are, are not the, the decision makers in that process. So accompaniment is, is kind of the term that, that PIH uses as our model, and it, this is not unique, but probably the one that Paul Farmer is most um, famous for. And the, the premise of it being that we're not setting up our own siloed system, but are really accompanying people and walking with them side by side. This is, is an important thing, and I think as, um, the, is the challenging, but the also best part of my job. It would be much easier to set up um, a parallel process, to be perfectly honest, because I could do what I wanted to do and what I thought was best. But that is, global health is kind of littered with with those intentions, which are, have obviously not been, um, although good intentions, but have not had the best outcomes. So certainly we work in conjunction with leaders in um, countries and with ministers of health by supporting the public sector. So we can try to make a difference and, and really um, change the, or move the needle on public health. We, you know, sustainability is not a word that we use at PIH. Um, and if anybody has ever heard Dr. Inez from the Ministry of Health from PIH, from uh, Rwanda, she talks a lot about um, the evilness of that world, the word sustainability, um, in that it, it prevents a lot of people from doing things because things are not considered sustainable. So it's a it's an interesting kind of change in, in paradox in how I think we should view global health, but it's very much based on this accompaniment model. So um, cancer treatment-wise, and this is just one of the, the big areas that I spend a lot of my time on in addition to the nursing um, stuff is um, I'm the, the key clinician for oncology, meaning a partner with Dana-Farber and with other clinicians who are the, our um, leaders in, in oncology care. And um, surprisingly, I think I, I never quite knew the depth of how, how much cancer there is. I think with infectious disease deaths going down, thankfully, we're seeing all these non-communicable diseases, cancer being a huge one of them. So about 80% of global cancer is in low or uh, middle income countries. So by far, the vast majority of the people in the world do not have access to cancer care. Um, and only about 5% of spending is spent. We spend a huge amount of money, rightfully so, in the, de in the developed world, um, and really have the burden of disease of, of very few. So we also are doing, uh, so cancer care, we have the um, Butara Hospital in Rwanda is the, the Rwandan National Cancer um, Referral Hospital. And in Haiti at Mirabalay, the new hospital, we are doing cancer care as well. Um, and this, I think, will be one of our largest specialty areas. Um, and we're already treating quite a few people, mostly breast and cervical cancer at this point, but have a huge, huge um, backlog of patients. And most patients uh, present very, very late um, a lot of very young women with advanced uh, breast cancer, and it's it's really a tragic, tragic situation. So when we look at health disparities, um, just in Haiti, obviously, is, is the main one that we're talking about today, and, and the differences between the U.S. and Haiti are, are quite stark. And I think um, 
This is not the worst statistics in the world, nor is the U.S. the best, as certainly we all know. Um, as, certainly as a, as a country that pays as much as we do, our health, co health outcomes are really quite poor in some areas. But in terms of mater uh, maternal mortality, um, 350 uh, deaths per 100,000 in Haiti versus 21 in the U.S., and infant mortality is 52 um, versus 6. I think when we look at a, a country, a lot of how they value women and children to me is a good um, indicator of, of um, or where they put their health resources. So Haiti being quite close to the U.S., um, this is actually, um, the, the rates are obviously not where they should be. So when we talk about structural violence, and this is from Paul Farmer's latest book, um, and it says, inequity, that is nobody's fault, that is just the way things are, that we live with because we cannot or will not or do not know how to address the conditions that create unequal outcomes for rich and poor. So when we talk about structural violence, I think this is, is as I think we've all matured, this is the biggest piece that I think I've matured in in, in my journey in, of global health and as a nurse is understanding this more. Um, and the, the uh, importance that we don't blame people, but that it really is somebody's fault. So there are decisions that are made daily that impact the have and the have nots in the world. And to just assume that's the way life should be is really not an answer, particularly if you do view health as a human right. So um, thinking about it this way, I think, is continues to be a, an eye-opening experience um, for me and particularly for um, many of the colleagues that I work with. How this comes into play is, is this socialization for scarcity. This is another term that I hadn't really heard of much before I came to PIH. But kind of the basic premises of this are um, that you know some kind of key things that if you have breast cancer and born in Rwanda, you're going to die because in Rwanda, not enough people have food to eat. So breast cancer is low on the priority list. It's normal for women to die in childbirth in Lesotho, a very high maternal mortality rate. Um, that's considered normal in many senses. Um, street violence is normal in Mattapan, um, in the, where I live in Boston. Um, children die of malnutrition in Haiti, and we can't help we have all the problems here at home. I think these, when we say these things, or we hear these things, or we internally internalize these things, we're really socialized for the scarcity of resources. And that's an important thing that um, I think we have to challenge each other on, that we don't let our perceived lack of resources, which is actually more of a lack of commitment to where resources are applied, let us make any of these um, statements be okay or be tolerated. Um, if we are, if we do get discouraged and let these be tolerated, then we truly are feeding into this scarcity um, uh, dilemma and also are feeding into the structural violence. So when we talk about foreign aid spending, and this, um, you know, many times when people say, why do you do global health? And, and we hear about the, a lot of this is we have enough problems at home and we need to keep the money here. And, and we all, any of us who work in global health have to fight this battle constantly. Um, I do a lot of, of fundraising for PIH at different events, and, and there'll always be somebody who raises their hand and says, I think that's great, but why aren't you helping here? Um, and I think that's where it's a lot of the, um, our own personal decisions come into play. And I, I certainly like to bring up the advances that have happened globally that we're applying to the U.S., which are going to have huge implications in how we deliver care here. 
with the Affordable Care Act and reimbursement for community health workers, for example, our best models of community health workers are from non-US settings. So we can certainly learn and apply those lessons. Um, and so it's, it certainly is feeding our entire um, system of global health. So um, this study was done in 2010, and it looked at the percent of the budget that people, Americans perceived were spent on different things. 27% um, people thought that we spent 25% of our budget on, on foreign aid. They think we should spend 13, and in actuality it's 0.6. So there's a huge discrepancy there in that people perceive that a huge amount of our money is spent on global health or foreign aid, when in actuality very little is spent in this. So this is kind of a, a myth that gets perpetuated and often is, is used in this um, a socialization, or the scarcity thing, again, that there's not enough money, there's not enough money, when in actuality there's a lot of money, it's, it's how we're allocating it. This is just looks in, in comparison with military spending, and again, that, that um, is just the facts of, of where money is spent, and, and the vast majority certainly being on military spending versus aid spending, or versus direct kind of disaster relief spending. So when we look at impact of diseases, I think we, it's, it's, nurses I think have always been very tuned into the comprehensive view of health. I think that's why many of us chose may, maybe to go into nursing when we could have chosen other, heal, other fields in healthcare. Um, knowing that we really can't separate uh, socioeconomics to health is an important thing, an important thing that I think we need to address more aggressively in this country, um, whereas I think we've started to address it in a much more proactive way in other places in the world. So poverty being the biggest one of these, um, we certainly know numerous studies that the, the poverty um, certainly relates to low health outcomes. This is is um, this beats any gender, any geographic, any other kind of regional differences. So this is for us to look at healthcare and not look at poverty as a factor is, is really not a good use of our resources. This is from Nelson Mandela who just says, massive poverty and obscene inequality are such terrible um, scrooges of our time that they have to rank alongside slavery and apartheid as social ills. Like slavery and apartheid, poverty is not natural. It is man-made and can be overcome and eradicated by the actions of human beings. Again, this feeds into that we can't rest on the um, fact or the perceived fact that things are always going to stay the way they are because we uh, other places in the world don't have the same um, current system of health care. When we talk about HIV and, and AIDS and TB, this is the area that obviously I came into global health working and, and is um, was where the I think most of the US first started to look at global health, other than the kind of the TB warriors from long ago, most times the, the biggest amount of money went into global health during the HIV epidemic. So certainly lessons learned from there are important. Um, in this country as well, a lot of the HIV specific funding services have been cut. Um, and it's, it's, the challenge has been that they were not necessarily integrated into our health system strengthening that happened. Uh, I think we're, we're, we'll be remiss to not um, make sure that we don't repeat these same mistakes in looking at other, other diseases, same thing with cancer. If all of a sudden there's a big push to donate to cancer and we do the same thing by setting up parallel silo programs, we're not gonna have learned from, from our mistakes. 
In HIV care, we had a lot of money to do specific food packages in the US and, and globally, uh, support groups and things like that. Having it not integrated into our primary care platform here, um, as soon as that money was cut, unless there was other external um, funding mechanisms and agencies or hospitals picked that up, all of those sources of, of, um, of comprehensive program that patients need were gone because it wasn't integrated into our, our health system. So you know, learning from the, the, um, the massive input of money into global health from HIV, I think is an important thing. And, and making sure that we work with our donor and funder population that we need to support health system strengthening, not disease specific um, funding. Food insecurity is, is a huge problem and something that you, you feel like that we should be beyond at this point um, globally and, and in the US. And it certainly is still a huge, huge problem of food insecurity around the world. Um, as we look at the tragedy in the Philippines and, and see the same um, challenges of getting food and water to people is, is really a daily event in a lot of places and, and hopefully lessons learned from other disasters like the earthquake in Haiti will, will help make that aid recovery a little bit, um, go a little bit smoother. One thing that Partners in Health has done is looked at how do we marry um, what we need to produce and what we need to give our patients with providing socioeconomic um, support for our communities. So we have, through a, a collaboration with Abbott Labs, have a Nuri Mamba factory, which is Plumpy Nut, which is a fortified peanut butter that's give, given to um, uh, children around the world who are malnourished. So we make our own version of this, uh, not to sell, and that's a huge piece of that we don't sell it. It's just for our own uh, clinics and um, hospitals in Haiti. And uh, all of the peanuts are bought from local farmers. It's all local people in the community who are trained to work in the factory. So again, not just addressing that we provide a nutritional supplement, but that we're providing addressing those other socioeconomic and poverty um, uh, cycles that are happening in the community. There's many, uh, many instances of really good microfinance and, and income generation things that are embedded in global health, which I think has been great. Um, and this is, I think, one example, but there are certainly many more that we can learn from, also for the US, I think. In terms of water, this is obviously, again, pointing back to cholera. And a few weeks ago, we had um, two of our physicians, one physician, um, Dr. Ralph Turnier, who came and spoke in Capitol Hill about cholera and eloquently talked about the challenges that cholera has brought to the clinic he works at. Um, and then, then uh, a few colleagues presented that at the APHA conference in Boston and really looked at um, what cholera has done to Haiti, which had already been so devastated by the earthquake. So cholera killed 5,000 Haitians in the first year. Again, it broke out, broke out in October of 2010. Um, three years later, about 8,400, probably 9,000 now have died. Um, and probably almost 700,000 have become six, sick, so approximately one in 15. We know that this number is, is um, under an underestimation because of it's, it's often difficult for people who live in rural areas of Haiti to be counted in, in this type of situation, and really is now classified as the worst cholera outbreak in the world. Cholera now from this epidemic is in the Dominican Republic and Mexico, and is being um, 
um, seen in other countries in the surrounding region. So it's certainly the impact of it happening to Haiti is not isolated. This is certainly spreading throughout the entire region. This is from Dr. Almazor, who was one of the physicians who it was our clinical director at um, HSN or in St. Mark, and he says, I worked all night at the hospital with a few colleagues. There were two doctors, six nurses from more than 300 patients who needed IV fluids. We were overwhelmed by this immensity of this tragedy. More than 300 patients died that day. They came too late to the hospital and um, from too far away to be taken care of by too few providers. Cholera is, is an example of kind of a very a, a flash flood of, of lack of a better word, of an emergency that happened and really collapsed a, a very fragile health system as it is. We still have cholera treatment centers throughout our regions that we work in Haiti and we have patients in them every day. Um, we do a, a tremendous amount with outreach as well, um, but this is going to be in Haiti for our foreseeable, our, our lifetime and, and really is a, a tragic situation. Um, when we look at global nursing, and, and nursing was critical to the cholera outbreak in the sense of we have some phenomenal nurse leaders who were led our community health worker teams. And they are, as Ms. Tulme and Ms. Ketty, who are the, the people who really um, took the brunt of organizing community health workers to spread throughout Haiti to do education on hygiene, on uh, safe water, on getting recognizing of symptoms, of getting people to treatment centers. And um, without this, this really phenomenal strong network of community health workers, there's, there would have been many, many more deaths in our region. Um, and it really is a testament to our being embedded in these communities and the ability to make this happen. Um, I think we're all distraught by the amount of deaths that did happen, uh, but are, are also acknowledge that there would have been many more had we not had this system really led by two amazing strong nurses. So globally, there are about 35 million nurses and midwives who provide care. And this is, this is the estimate that um, uh, International Council of Nurses uses, and this is, is, um, doesn't get into the, to the politics of what is considered a nurse, other than that these are people who have been trained and are called nurses within their country, but are not lay people. This is the infographic that PIH did in 2011. And this looked at, um, we really wanted to articulate in a, a pictorial way of, of what is the, what is nursing look like. And um, nurses are definitely other providers, key providers of primary health care. And we comprise about 60 to 80 percent of the workforce around the world, but yet deliver 90 percent of the care. In most places in the world, physicians are not there. Most, a lot of places in the world, nurses are not there. But there's much more apt as going to be a nurse more than a physician. Where, um, because of this, you would think that nurses would have a fairly strong role in decision making and global health delivery um, funding and, and that type of thing. But we still remain, sadly, a, a not a, a huge um, leader at the decision making tables yet. I think we're moving in that direction, but still have a long way to go that, that nurses are, are recognized for their um, work around the world. So um, in unequal distribution, we certainly know that um, there's, in Boston, you can go out and you trip over nurses because there's millions of us in the working, walking throughout the city. Um, and it's, it's similar in, in a lot of places in the world. 10.9 um, nurses per 10,000 population in Africa, where there's 61.5 nurses in the America region. 
More, more, even more stark is when we look at socioeconomic again. Um, in low-income groups, there's about 6.7 nurses per 10,000, compared to 78.6 in high-income groups, so serving those populations. So again, the poorest people are the people who don't have access to nurses or healthcare. 37% um, of the world's healthcare workers live in the U.S. or Canada, and um, yet contain only 10% of the global burden of disease. So huge numbers of nurses are here, and certainly not where most nurses are needed if we're tracking with disease. I don't know if anybody's used World Mapper, but it's this really amazing free thing online where you can put in just about anything and it and it can show you the map. So the the um, this kind of compares world population versus prevalence of nurses. So the world population is on your left, and you can see that um, if we look at where the vast majority of people are, it's not necessarily in the Americas region. Um, and the massive amount of population are certainly in Asia and Africa and, other, and India and those places that are um, represented by the, the um, yellow and the green and the other colors. That compared to the map of where the prevalence of nurses are, you can see as a kind of gross um, uh, visualization of the disconnect between where nurses are and um, where the world population is. This is just the word nurse in all of the different countries that, that um, we work in, and it's certainly been a, a, a challenge and, and such an honor to work in so many different places and learn from so many, mis so many different nurses around the world. Uh, when I started at Partners in Health, there hadn't been a formal nursing program. So we're certainly was, we're best known for Paul Farmer and for other physicians and many of the colleagues who, from Brigham who've gone back and forth. Um, and in actuality, about 85% of our clinical staff at our sites are nurses. That being said, we hadn't really focused on nurses in a um, strategic or in a proactive way. Not that there hadn't been a lot of phenomenal physician colleagues who had, and other colleagues who have worked with nurses, there hadn't been a formal program. So walking into this, this arena was obviously overwhelming to know what, what possibly could be done with, with, with me at that point. So the, the goal was to really look at, at how do we find or look at forces of the nurses we have and see what is the best practices of nursing care that we can have in our resource-limited settings um, and see how that compares globally and where can we try to move things up and ratchet things up to give the nurses the tools that they need to be more uh, efficient and, and have better outcomes, which all of our nurses want to do. Really focusing on spe specialty nurse education and, and certainly focusing on partnerships. We've, we've had a phenomenal partnership with Dana-Farber Cancer Institute in Boston, who has completely funded um, having nurse experts come to Rwanda and for Haiti for three months at a time, who, who are, these are very seasoned professionals who come for three months and they function to accompany uh, nurses in those countries to learn oncology care. Uh, oncology care is not something you can do haphazardly. There's obviously dangers to the people who are administering chemotherapy. Having it being done safely is, is important and is not um, necessarily the easiest thing to do. There's no way we could have done this, started these two programs in Haiti and Rwanda without this ongoing support of Dana-Farber who really have, have stepped up and been phenomenal company tours to us as well as to our, our colleagues in those two countries. The other big area we're starting to look at is critical care and ER. 
and this is again working in global health for many years never thought i would remotely be focusing on critical care um, but as we look at providing not just community-based care but secondary facilities and tertiary care facilities we have to look at the full loop of care um, to be able to really push this um, that that we want an equitable agenda uh, for healthcare. So we have to be able to have a place where we can refer patients to who need emergency surgery, who are in trauma situations. Um, at Mirablair New Hospital in Haiti, we're at the where two paved roads meet, paved roads meet, and we're really learning quite a bit about trauma. Um, in that facility. Again, not something any of us internally have expertise in um, and has been a place where we've um, had to really look at how do we look at interdisciplinary care practices, what's the best way to provide emergency care, knowing that you also have, we don't have the ability to vent patients unless they're in the OR. Like what can we do in the, in the reality of, those, of that situation but not also giving in to the scarcity? So it's, it's a challenge and something that we continue to work on and, and is certainly something that I, I am um, in awe of the, the care that's done on a, on a daily basis by our colleagues in Haiti and other places. We're starting a, a, or restarting a, a CRNA program. Most of the um, anesthesia in Haiti is done by nurse anesthetists, so we're, we're starting a program with um, the, the Haitian Ministry of Health and uh, pediatrics and NICU is the other area. We're, we're really doing this as we're learning as we go and are the national teaching hospital for the country, one of them. So nursing schools are all having their students rotate through our facility starting soon. They're already at our other facilities, as well as we've started um, some physician residencies. So this is really a hope in many senses to how to do tertiary care in um, a place like Haiti that um, also allows us to really push the envelope to provide good care. The other big piece is leadership strengthening. And as I said, we have really good nursing leaders in a lot of, in all of the countries we work, but have never, they've never had the ability or hadn't had um, the uh, dedication of, of our organization to work with them and, and give them the tools they need. And now we certainly have that and are starting a road to nursing excellence at Mirablay Hospital in Haiti through a generous donation of, a, of somebody who is allowing us to strengthen and look at nursing leadership um, as an important piece of, of influencing quality of care. It's, um, you know, when we look at partnerships, and there's many people who are very fortunate want to work with us in Partners in Health, and, and there's no way we could do what we do without it. Um, I'm struck many times by people's um, intention of wanting to do really well in, in different places. And um, our, our goal is really to look at bi-directionality. So it's, uh, we have to look at how do we bring the best of what our nurses in Haiti can teach us and what can we teach them. So really a, a bi-directional model is what we're, we're striving for in all areas. So certainly when we look at cholera, for example, I've been an infectious disease nurse practitioner for 15 years. I've never seen cholera and, and never thought I would in my lifetime. Who I learned about cholera from was from the nurses who are on the front line in, in Haiti. They are the experts in infectious disease, certainly in cholera, in delivering care in, in, with very limited resources that I think I get to 
get on that plane and go home. And, and they're there every day. And so by far are the experts. As well in malnutrition, we don't see that as much in this country. We could learn a lot from our colleagues there. What we can bring in this bi-directional kind of partnership is our specialty nursing education of working in intensive cares and NICUs and things like that, that they haven't had the technology or the, um, the ability to have that specialized training. The multidisciplinary care models, too, is something that I think we're, the US is really focusing on now because team-based care is by far the best care that can be given, so how we can infuse that. Looking at healthcare technology and, and obviously financial and other resources are kind of what we bring to the table. But really critical that, that we're, we come to the table with a certain skill set as do our colleagues there. So Haiti, these are the, our um, sites that we uh, work in currently in Haiti. We're in the Central Plateau and in the Artibonite, so we don't work in Port-au-Prince other than we have an office in Port-au-Prince and post-earthquake um, we had staffed some of the tents in the um, uh, tent cities there. One of the things we saw at St. Mark, for example, one of the hospitals was when we were starting a family practice residency was we knew that we could be um, improving physician training uh, by having this residency, but if we didn't look at improving nursing capacity, we would continue this divide between the physicians and the nurses. So we, we uh, decided to have, uh, to create clinical nurse educators, which was not a role that was there, um, and really looked at how do we support those nurses, the 150 nurses and auxiliaries who worked there, to build capacity in the nursing staff we had and to improve care. So what we did was we, we looked at experienced nurses who we thought had the right attitude and wanted to do this and, and brought them into this role as a nurse educator slash mentor. And I, I distinguish between those two roles purposefully, and I'll talk about that in a minute. Um, but to really, how do we, to have these nurses model high quality healthcare and not be part of the nursing staff, um, be part of the nursing staff in the sense of they both had worked at the hospital, were well known, still were, were seen as very much of the team, but were not counted in staffing numbers. Um, by us funding this, we were able to concentrate on, on education. It's very difficult for a Ministry of Health to, folk, to concentrate on a nurse educator when they're trying to staff a ward. That's where we can bring that and say that's what we're funding. Um, and it's been a, a really good um, combination. So we had these nurse educators work by assessing, prioritizing, education, uh, educating, and problem solving. The problem, just for one concrete example, was looking at um, the one of our wards, the pediatric ward, which was overflowing. Um, infants weren't being evaluated, and there's really no clear system of care. And what I would hear about all the time was the bad nurses. Those nurses are bad, they don't know what they're doing. Um, we have to do something about the nurses and, and that type of thing. Knowing that this is an overwhelming thing for anybody to, to have to look at where do, you, where do you step in and try to address any of these issues, we had a um, nurse who was getting her MPH from, from BU who did an integration with us for 12 weeks. Julie Anathan, and she worked with the nurse educators to use this prioritization matrix. And it gave us some structure or framework to not go in there and throw up our hands and just be discouraged because there was a thousand things we could do. So they really looked at what are the problems on the different units. They interviewed the doctors, the, 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 um, all of our facilities are Ministry of Health facilities, so it, the Ministry of Health. Uh, people who worked there, obviously, a nursing director, and, and had everybody weigh in on, on what these problems were. 
we then kind of assign, according to this, this prioritization, assigned really looking at the frequency, importance, feasibility, and cost, and then tried to figure out this is somewhat of an objective, I mean, not completely objective way of deciding what we would work on. Because knowing that if we just went in there and constantly put out fires, we would never kind of move anything along. So we really looked at the group, um, interviewing everybody in the group, kind of assigning these numerical values to this and then came up with a score, and then it was easier for us to figure out what we wanted to concentrate on first. So one of the things that we could concentrate on is defined hours for the positions on the pediatric ward. So um, not high cost, obviously, something that happened constantly that we didn't know when the physicians were there, had high value, and it was something that we could then decide to concentrate that on that as well as some of the other things of creating a finger stick policy, for example. The things that were most difficult, like not enough doctors, not enough nurses, we certainly would continue to work on organizationally, system-wide, but wouldn't spend all of our time throwing our hands up in the air and saying, we don't have enough staff, we don't have enough staff, but to try to um, us to have some successes in this and some wins. The challenges certainly of lack of staffing, lack of knowledge, lack of skills, lack of motivation, and, and a big piece of, of the systems issues. When we tried to, to um, again, knowing that funding runs out and, and that being ingrained in my head from lessons learned from the HIV world, that I didn't want us to, when the money ran out, that people didn't see the value of the nurse educators other than the nurses, wanted to capture what they did that addressed the whole system of care, not just nurses talking about nurses. So. Um, one of the things that, that we did was have Ms. Russell, who's one of the nurse educators, really look at the systems issues as well, but capture what she was doing. So in addition to the tracking of, of what they do of their day, which was not based on uh, punitive tracking, but I wanted to see how much of their day is actually spent on not educating on how to do newborn resuscitation. If you can do all the trainings you want, but if there's no oxygen, it's a pointless exercise. So really looking at what, what are the other pieces and how much time are they spending on that. Um, and that's been a really interesting, um, illuminating thing. And we're looking at capturing that data now to see how much time do they actually spend in a week, in a year, et cetera, on these big systems issues. So that if the time comes when this funding runs out, we can really show that they're affecting the entire system of care. It's not just a nursing problem or not just a nursing issue. The number of trainings they do by topic, we, we kind of ca have captured all of that. And really, and I, I threw this in because I, the, I am a firm believer now that we really need to collect data, but we collecting data and not using it is a, a pointless um, uh, thing that we're all asked to do. So we collect this stuff every month, but every month we go over it with the nurse educators, or they go over it actually with us, and talk about what, what they're doing and what um, kind of education they're doing and also by what type of training. We tried to um, really look at, because the nurse educator is a new model of care, a new model of nursing that um, really wanted to influence that they were doing bedside trainings, not all just didactic learning. And that's a, a culture shift that had to happen. And now we can look at it and say, it looks like for this, these amount of months, we really did a lot of didactic training. Uh, maybe we need to focus more on bedside training again and kind of completing that loop.
when we look at, at educator versus mentor, we're, we're um, going to be introducing clinical mentors at three of our sites um, starting soon and really are distinguishing the role as, as different roles um, and the nurse educator, although at this site do both, but really seeing the mentorship and the educator role as two different things. So the key messages certainly are nurses serve in education and mentorship roles, in some places the same, in some places we're separating them out. Um, nurses are well positioned and poised to address system issues and gaps, but we have to capture what they're doing. Uh, again, what much of what nursing does everywhere is invisible. The fact that we're still included in bed costs in the U.S. as an inpatient nurse kind of points to that, that we're invisible in what we do. Building capacity at the bedside will improve patient outcomes, and really looking at this, this role opportunity. So now there's a place where nurses can see that they can move up to a different position. And now these nurse educator positions are sought after, and we have one at Ench. We are um, going to be having one in Belladere. We're at the new hospital in Mirabalay. We're having a specialty nurse educator team. So we're really looking at building in-country expertise so that when we open a NICU again in five years, we're going to already have trained nurses at Mirabalay who know how to open a NICU so that we don't have to rely on the U.S. and really builds in-country expertise. This is the new hospital at Mirabalay. Um, and, you know, when we look at what we need, we this year for Nurses Week, we really looked at um, what, the, what nurses needed and you know, we always look for long-term volunteers um, to go and actually spend time because we're an accompaniment model. Sometimes we do do short week trainings and then we it's fine to have a short-term person, but by far accompaniment's based on relationship building. So to have somebody go down in a week, you're really not gonna build strong relationships. So we look for longer-term kind of volunteers um, and specialty training in certain areas such as the ER and critical care. Um, but not everybody can go for three months at a time and it's not appropriate for everybody to go so we're really looking at what are the twinning opportunities or what are things that hospitals and and schools and facilities here can do to support the nurses there and one simple thing we did over nurses week was had nurses um, or anybody write in and thank our nurses at our sites and it was really astounding that the thousands of responses we had from from around the world of people emailing in to our nurses and saying thank you for what you do. And it was a huge thing And this. We delivered this to our, uh, our nurses in uh, Mexico who are the ones we were focusing on and in Peru. And then they were able to really see that, that people were listening. A very small thing to do in many senses, but I think uh, goes back to us building this global nursing community and looking at how we can pair um, having us develop nursing weeks um, at Mirabalay, we do have the technology to do um, long-distance learning. Can we do interactive Skype things? We have good internet there, which is, is fabulous most of the time. Um, and uh, also, how do we focus on these nursing recognition issues, which as uh, somebody who's, who is doing a budget is hard to justify always a nursing recognition project versus another staff nurse. And I never, I understand that a lot more than I did before. And, um, but that's where we need partners to help us do these things that are less easy for us to do that are actually trying to do staffing and, and, and education. So the, the kind of the, the point being, I think that if, we, if we're really looking at standing in solidarity with global nursing, and I think this is something again that um, really brings it back to whether I'm in, in Haiti or at Mass General or wherever that this, um, this is a, 
a pivotal time in healthcare, and, and nurses are, are so well positioned to to make this leap and to to become much more uh, players on this global stage. But we're not going to be able to do this without having a much more of a integrated and supportive community. And there's many different ways to do that. But it's it's I think up to us to make this to take this stand and to really have nurses be see themselves as one part of one large community, not many different country communities. I think that's it. These, I just have to say this about the books, right? So these are the books that are um, from local colleague, for local people and as well as the keynote speaker last night and tomorrow and that are available on the website. Thank you. So any questions or comments? Yeah. Um, I had a question. You said something about sustainability being evil. Yeah. Yeah. It's, so Dr. Anez, who's the Minister of Health um, in Rwanda, talks about that the um, when we say sustainable, that you should never start a project unless it's sustainable, then a lot of things would never happen. So if we if somebody said you can't start treating cancer in Rwanda unless it's sustainable for three years or five years, no one would have ever been treated. Same thing with HIV in Haiti. If if they had said you can't start treating HIV until you can guarantee a year of treatment for everybody, it never would have happened. So sustainability being that the excuse that people use to not um, address things. Not that you're haphazard in what you do, but you can't let that be the thing that limits your imagination and your, your ability to push that envelope. And I think that's a, she has a really a wonderful slide that she got off the web of somewhere that really looks at the amount of time sustainability is used in conversations and, and um, you know, as a joke, but it really, um, when she says it, it really strikes me that this is something she hears constantly much more so than I do in terms of um, you shouldn't do this unless it's sustainable. Sustainable on what many things in life wouldn't, if we had to say that, most of us wouldn't do anything. So it kind of has become a, a negative word in, because it's used as an excuse. Yeah? You had mentioned when you were talking about HIV and how, how it's a failure of us to really Yeah, you know, I think it's uh, it's a challenge because I do think that I know that patients benefit also from a community. And so if we didn't have HIV-specific communities, for example, of having support groups and that type of thing, we would that we would lose something. So the, I think the challenge is um, trying to get our, our, our funders and donors to, um, when you're looking at approving HIV care, there's certainly still some things that should be HIV specific, like support groups, maybe like things like that. But the it should support the whole healthcare platform in that area, so that the lab is improved not just for a CD4 machine. That um, when we look at facilities, that not just the HIV TB area is is improved. That the maternity ward is built and improved. So I think it's more using that more wisely to strengthen a health system, and um, knowing that there. We don't have to give up one for the other. We still can do cancer support groups, HIV support groups. We still can have people who specialize in different areas. But it should be part of the system 
of the hospital or the or this or the clinic not as a special outpost or a special um, you know even um, you know down the road that type of thing which a lot of the HIV stuff that happened because money came to build buildings and they could only be used for that so we're so there was a beautiful kind of HIV building and then the maternity ward is falling down and so I think it's it's I see it more that way that doesn't mean that we can't have HIV specific programming but we have to educate our donors and funders more that you're we really have to strengthen the whole health system and um, and still specialize in in nursing and in other areas but that doesn't mean that that um, we take away from the whole thing or in in spite of Mm -hmm. I guess the point that came to my mind as you talked about the nurse educator role and financing that, that it, it's always fascinated me in my nursing career that even here in the United States during times of economic downturn, we were too often willing to cut yes. nurse educator positions, clinical nurse specialist positions, rather than realizing that if we don't have educators, mentors to bring along the next generation of nurses, uh, we're always behind the eight ball yeah, in I agree. nursing. It's just fascinating that it's even a it's a problem even in underserved parts yep. of the world that we don't value that need for the uh, clinical expert or the uh, person who's willing to invest time in bringing along the next generation yep. of nurses. I totally agree, and I think a lot of that is we have to kind of show their outcomes better. So we have to kind of prove that nursing care is improved by having that nurse educator and nurse mentor there. It's it's hard always to tie it back to patient outcomes. I mean, ideally, if we could tie it back to patient outcomes, and in some ways, potentially, we can. But I, I totally agree, because that's the first thing that's always going to go. So we have to, I think, get better at articulating what they do and capturing what they do so it's not invisible again. And I think kind of training that next level of providers is, is a perfect example of us, of us, of the argument we need to use. Well, I see those roles often being Yeah. Others that are in charge of healthcare systems. I never had these problems until she came along. Yeah. Um, and the, it's easy to bury some of those problems when you don't have people who are willing to be strong advocates mm -hmm. for what's really needed for patient care. Yeah. Particularly when the doctor-nurse dynamic. So by kind of giving nurses more tangible, critical critical thinking and, and and learning how to challenge in a way that we all had to learn how to do in a way that was appropriate and didn't make enemies. That if you don't see that around you, that's not something you learn. And I think that that modeling is important, but but it's not always a popular position because of that. Because if um, while we're doing that, people's turf can be threatened a little bit. So I totally agree. Any other questions? I have a couple of questions. I'm trying to figure out which one I want to ask. So when you look at strengthening nurses, a lot of what you're doing is strengthening the culture of nursing in all these what is, what um, are the roles, how are, how does the public perceive nurses in these places and what is the role of looking at um, younger education and, and um, secondary school and making nursing an attractive um, field for the smart? Yeah. Uh, if, now with Millennium Development Goals, more girls are going to be coming up through uh, secondary education and how to make nursing attractive to sort of the best and the brightest to bring them yeah, and I think it varies country to country. I think it's, it's um, and sadly, a lot depends on as more men become into the profession, and this, I'm not the first person, there's certainly many articles I've written on this, but as men come into the profession, the status moves up. So in, in Rwanda, 
and in Malawi we have more men entering at a much faster rate. So I can see nursing already starting to be um, there, and actually our nurse leaders in those countries are always men, which to me is also a sad thing because we're perpetuating this. So it's it's trying to balance that, I think, piece of things, certainly. Um, in Haiti, the National Nursing School admitted their first men to their program only a few years ago. So really, by far, predominantly female profession, and it really plays into that. I think a lot is seeing nurses in uh, uh, role, different roles is important. So having this clinical nurse educator roles, when little girls go to Mirabelay and they see that nurses are in charge, are leaders, are, are interacting, making healthcare decisions, I mean, I think that's a long-term approach. But as we look at, at trying to build salaries, trying to look at um, impacting kind of educational opportunities, I mean, it really affects not just at an individual facility level, but nursing overall. Um, and that that's very very challenging. And I think it's it's um, I look at what we've gone through even in my career as 25 years as a nurse. There's a, a huge difference. I'm hoping we can leapfrog over a lot of, of what we had to go through, and certainly many people before us to do that. But I think we're going to do that by I think not just um, yelling to be at the table. I think I've, I've matured in that, but that we are valuable at the table. And so I think by giving nurses the tools to really be part of and know the language of what decision-making is happening at the table, to be able to talk about outcomes, to talk about monitoring and evaluation, to talk about quality, that's when, that's when we're gonna get moved up. I think by us just insisting that nursing is at the table because we should be there has not worked. And so we, ha we have to change our tune and I think be patient-focused, not just profession-focused. Yeah, the vast majority are working in, in the outside, in health promotion, health centers, health posts, so certainly by far. And I think what happens is then they have informal power, um, but they have power when the physician isn't there. So for in Mexico, for example, the, um, the nurses are in charge except for the two weeks when the physician's there. So their practice completely changes when the physician is beside them. And that doesn't make sense. There's certainly room for both. But that, I think, is where we have to start to look at that and, and, and have not our practice be dependent on a, a physician model um, and articulating what these nurses are doing in, in a lot of these community settings. Again, just like in this country, people didn't know Ms. Ketty or Ms. Tomei was a nurse specifically because they saw her as a community um, provider or something, not necessarily that she was there as a nurse. Um, and in many ways, in this country, too, people who don't identify as a nurse, like I'm, you're a nurse whether you're teaching or working at, you know, Staples or whatever, um, that I think we're, we're profession-wise, we have to get better at identifying nursing is not just a direct patient bedside care, but what we're doing and bringing our nursing view is, is a much more expanded vision of that. Any other questions? Could you be um, specific about what you mean when you say um, that you think leadership strengthening should be done? Can you define what, um, what that curriculum would, like, would look like or what, what you think would be necessary? So for what we're... So we, at PH, we actually are doing um, leadership development at, at all levels. 
um, in many senses with our kind of country um, leaders and, and who are uh, clinicians or administrative people, et cetera. Nursing-wise specifically, um, we're doing, uh, we're developing a, a leadership program at the hospital which will influence our whole Zomnilisante system where we are having nurses develop, develop formal um, leadership skills and uh, through um, you know problem solving for mentoring to how to how to give feedback I mean all kind of the basic leadership 101 but we're incorporating it and empowering the nurses at different levels of having a charge nurse having a nurse manager having a nursing supervisor who reports to the nurse administrator who reports to the CNO and and seeing those not as setting up hierarchy for hierarchy's sake but that though everyone in, in those um, levels has a responsibility and um, a different level of, of leadership that's, or, or sphere of control. So it's basic kind of leadership is what, what we're trying to do. And also to look at that, a big piece of that being interdisciplinary. So how do we have the nursing, given nursing basic leadership, so then we can do more inter interdisciplinary care or interdisciplinary training with our, our physician colleagues so that people have the basic same foundation um, whereas most of the nurses who went to the nursing school have never had any of that management training, leadership stuff um, that the physicians, some of them get. So they're not on equal playing fields. I think I'm getting the hook. Yeah, we, <laughs> but there is a little lobby right outside here if folks want to maybe sure. ask some informal yes. questions for a few minutes. We have another group coming in, so I apologize for this. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.